You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Today, very old music books and their number one fan. My area of expertise is chant, so I guess I sort of have a weakness for this stuff. I just go gaga when I see a chant book. A Carmelite priest on the 600-year-old choir books that tell the story of his order. On this Saturday after Thanksgiving, a national holiday with a very simple mandate, the significance of tradition is obvious. Butterball hotlines are swamped, turkey is served, vegetarians are mocked. It's American tradition, and it's young enough to still be pretty fresh. What about the traditions so old and marginal they could be lost to the march of time? The traditions of small populations who go back several hundred years— The Carmelite Order is made up of friars, nuns, and priests. It's part of the Catholic Church, and Father James Boyce is a member. Can you introduce me to the Carmelite Order? If this was Hollywood Squares, I mean, what should I know about (laughs) the Carmelite Order? You like long walks on the beach and romance novels? I mean, give me a quick profile. The Carmelites were founded on Mount Carmel in the Holy Land, which is why we're called Carmelites, at the end of the 12th or very beginning of the 13th century. They began as hermits. There was no single founder, no dramatic separation from another group. These were men who were living in shared solitude, and most of what they did was pray. They developed daily rituals of prayer known as their liturgy. They grew in number there on Mount Carmel. And then gradually uh, moved to the west because it wasn't really safe to live there very long. Prayer was central to their identity as a group. It was their tradition. They worshipped in common, as Father Boyce says. When I say in common, we all came together to do it as a group. So everybody came to chapel four, five, or six times during the day, and once in the middle of the night probably been done around two in the morning. So you get up at two and come to chapel for about an hour's worth and then go back to bed at three and get up at five or whatever, five or six to start the rest of the day. And then several times during the day, you'd have all the prayers that were done. You always came together as a group to do them. That's the way it was done. And as they grew, they spread out, moving westward throughout Europe, but still intent on praying in common, although their members occupied different houses separated by miles and miles. So here's what we're looking at. A group of friars, worshipping according to rituals they've developed themselves, spread out across Europe and intent on preserving their unique prayers and chants. They had to standardize their rituals and make sure each house of Carmelites had a copy at a time when there were no copies, no machines to facilitate that standardization, no printing press. Exactly how old are they? Well, the original books were done, two of them were done in 1397. So that's, what, 600 and some years. And then the latest ones were done in the early 1700s, um, so that's about 300 years old. So they range between three and 600 years old. These are choir books that contain the precious daily rituals of prayers and chants. Each house made its own copy from scratch. They started out as parchment made from sheepskin. They're really beautifully done. They're extremely carefully done. This is in an age before computers, so there were no corrections, or corrections were made uh, with, with, with great difficulty. So if you turned out to be a klutz making the manuscript, you'd probably be taken off that detail pretty soon. But they put a lot of time and effort into these things. They made their own ink. They made their own paints, their own colors. Everything had to be done by hand using a quill pen 
and uh, it was a very uh, uh, carefully done and very difficult. I mean, I tried a quill once and almost had ink all over everything except what it was supposed to be over. So um, these were done with great care, and they spared no expense at all in doing these. Now, 600 years later, the books have outlasted their makers. And they're in great shape because they're all done on parchment, which is sheepskin, and those sheep are... God bless them. They gave their lives to make these manuscripts, but I mean, they're, st- they're still very, very durable, and they're still in wonderful shape, and they'll be around long after I am. Most of the listeners are. <laughs> they survived the westward migration of Carmelites. They survived wars. In 1655, in a war with Sweden, the Carmelite house was completely burned to the ground when they destroyed most of the city. Before that happened, the Carmelites took these older choir books that they had, buried them inside the town someplace, and when the war was over, they unearthed them and put them back in their place. These books have survived the Nazi invasion, they've survived the communists, they have survived so many people, and they will survive for centuries to come. And it's a great tribute and a credit to the local Carmelites who know the value of what they have and have preserved it very carefully. And what they have is a record of how a group of hermits came to identify themselves as a distinct order with unique traditions and special ways of worship. For the past several decades, these choir books weren't on the radar of Carmelites in the West at all. The books were in Krakow, Poland, behind the Iron Curtain. But when the travel restrictions began to lift, word began to spread. Father Boyce heard about them and made the trip to Krakow to find the books. They just came on my radar because I heard about them and I knew they were there. To look at these manuscripts, though, is really wonderful. Many of them are have these gorgeously, uh, what we call historiated initials, a capital letter with a picture inside that illustrates something that's in the manuscript or the, in the chants for the day. And it's, the Many of them are beautifully done, and they illustrate things that are particular to the Carmelite order. And Father Boyce wrote his own book about the manuscripts he found. My book actually argues that the Carmelite liturgy was much more important to Carmelite identity than has ever been thought and is than is thought now. And I'm hoping that especially members of the Carmelite order will take it seriously because it means that the liturgy is an important part of who we are. In my perspective, doing liturgy well is important to who we are as religious. I hope they will take that message home. I I don't know. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson, talking with Father James Boyce, a Carmelite priest and musicologist who specializes in medieval chants. So he was excited to learn that Carmelite choir books, chock full of prayers and chants and dating back to the 1300s, had been saved and carefully guarded by Carmelites in Krakow, Poland. In 2000, Father Boyce made the trip to Krakow to see the books for himself. He found carefully inked pages of prayer and music, illuminated with gold leaf and filled with colorful pictures illustrating scripture. These choir books provide a complete record of the daily rituals of medieval Carmelites who came together several times each day to pray. And Father Boyce brought back photocopies. So what is this that you wanted to show me? Well, this is... This is what's called a historiated initial. This has a picture inside it. So it's a letter D, and it's got gold plating on the edges. and Gold leaf all through, and that would be the angel and Jesus. I think this is in Gethsemane, but I'm not sure. I can't remember. 
every, every page has this gorgeous border decoration, and the most simple of letters is beautifully decorated. They spared no expense. There's at least a half a dozen colors in just one, one, one illumination. Still one very miniature. bright. Very bright, yes. It's still in great shape. The, the manuscript parchment is uh, lasts very well. I mean, paper disintegrates, especially if it's acidic, but parchment lasts forever. This is from 1644, but the early ones are, are in great shape as well. Everything about these manuscripts is, is quite durable. Uh, there's a marvelous inscription or dedication in the first folio of the manuscript, and it lists all the people who were involved in the production of the manuscript. And then it says, in Latin, of course, let all those who come after us know that these are the people who had a hand in making this manuscript. And it lists the different friars. So I felt like I was meeting Carmelite colleagues from 600 years ago through this inscription in the book. And then in a few of the uh, decorated initials, you'll have a little picture of a Carmelite and with a little banderole, almost like a little inscription like you have coming out of a comic book, of frater so-and-so made me. Their, their presence is very much felt. Your Carmelite colleagues that made these books some 600 years ago and 300 years ago, what, what made them pour so much time and money into these books? Every house in the order, every convent in the order, was required to have what's called a scriptorium, a room for copying books. And every house had to have a complete set of choir books because the liturgy was very important to the order. It was written down in legislation that... We had to make sure that the liturgy was done very carefully. That's why everybody, at least a number of people, would have been trained in writing these texts and writing the music to do the the books properly. When you consider it, even the expense of buying the parchment cost a fortune, but it was a value that every house should have them. And In fact, if there were two or three houses in the same city, each one had to have its own set of choir books. It really speaks of the importance of the liturgy to the Carmelites that they put so much time and effort into doing these. There was so much time and care put into, like, a letter that these were an object of... of Devotion? Yes, reverence. Um, Why? That's a very good question. It's a very interesting question. Uh, You're absolutely right. There was so much care and attention put into these things that I think it has to do with the Word of God being valuable. Um, the Christians value word and sacrament and the word of God is something precious and all these texts are basically the word of God and the book as a book um, we li- it was important uh, we live in a society where we regularly take very little time to write letters or to put what we think down on paper and we don't revise nearly as much as we should and we throw things out very quickly this was in an age when everything cost a great deal it was it took, took a great deal of time to make and, of course, everything had to be absolutely correct because this was being chanted by the friars. This was the word of God. This was their worship experience, and it had to be done correctly. And I think you're absolutely right that these books were so gorgeous, and many of them are just lovely, that I think they probably would have been objects of veneration that would be put on display at least from time to time. Now, you have extensive music training, and there are notes. You know, this is this is a choir book, so we can see the notes. Does the music just leap off the page? You know how to sight read. Does the music just leap off the page and start playing in your head? Uh, yes, it does. Yeah, I can. <laughs> I mean, I just have to look look at it for where the clef is in general. But yes, it does. It's the kind of, and of course, this was these manuscripts. The the people who sang from this would have been probably the choir or the a select group. Maybe five or six would have looked on in this book and sung. But they uh, they would have sight read or known how to do this. And uh, in fact, they would have practiced it, so they wouldn't be just winging it as they get to church. 
but um, it's, it's, it, yes, it leaps off the page, but also in this particular manuscript, a, 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 a historiated initial has a picture inside, and that's what makes it historiated. It tells a story or gives them some idea of what's going on. Usually a manuscript, a medieval manuscript, might have five or six, if you're lucky, historiated initials because they're difficult to do. This one has 110 historiated initials, which is extraordinary. For a manuscript to have 110 historiated initials is absolutely extraordinary, and many of them are really just beautiful in terms of the color scheme and the amount of gold leaf they put in and everything else. There was really no expense spared to do this manuscript, which is one of the earliest graduals or books of chance for mass to be done after the Council of Trent. After the Council of Trent, every religious order had to revise its books. And this collection allows you to see how they celebrated the liturgy before the Council of Trent and how they did it after. I have this image in my head of, you know, a bunch of friars sitting around this, you know, just recently finished choir book. And somebody comes in and says, that Council of Trent says we have to change everything. And all these these friars throw down their quills. Oh, we just finished. (laughs) Actually, there's some manuscripts I've seen that were done around 1545. And the Council of Trent started in that year. So, and, and not in our house, thank God. But if you did your manuscripts before the Council of Trent, you would be in a position to tear your hair out because everything you did would become obsolete rather quickly. Although in some cases, I think the, the diocese or the religious order did not comply with the Council of Trent for a long, long time afterwards because you wanted the manuscript to be in use for at least a couple of hundred years after you produced it. Because if you're doing matins at 2 in the morning, who is really going to come and check up on you to see whether you're doing it according to a new way or an old? Anybody who has... Uh, when you say matins, you mean the prayers that are said during the day. The prayers that are said during the day, but I speak in particular of the night office that done in 2 in the morning. And so once you get up in the middle of the night to do that, I don't think any inspector is going to come and check and see how you're doing it. They really wouldn't care at that point. The friars who were making these books, these were mendicants. These were people who, in lieu of owning very much, created. I just love that idea, you know, that the more Spartan your surroundings, the more you almost like out of like a desire to to see beauty around you, create it yourself. Absolutely. And also, in the name of the community, they acquired things. They would have very nice statues and uh, objects for the liturgy they spared no expense in because of the great value attached to the liturgy. So with the vow of poverty, people did not have private wealth. They they had no particular money themselves as individuals, although they had whatever they needed uh, to do their work and carry out their duties. But anything for the liturgy, they spared no expense in doing. And here, Father Boyce pointed to another picture from that liturgy, a hand-painted picture of two people and a baby, and just below them, a sinister-looking dragon. There's another one of Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and uh, with little cherubs above, and uh, Jesus with his foot on the dragon's head, and uh, all these details, reflecting, of course, a theology that's somewhat different from our own. This is a much... Dragon, yeah, I don't yeah. recognize that. Well, it, <laughs> Mary's foot was going to crush the, ser- the serpent's head or whatever, or Jesus was the little baby. Here you have either Mary or baby Jesus doing the deed, but we don't think in those terms now, but in the time right after the Council of Trent, they would have. And so it's depicting a theology that's somewhat different from our own, but it, still it's just beautifully, uh, just a gorgeously illuminated manuscript to do all this. And, of course, then it gives you a visual interpretation of what you're singing. So you have the Latin text then you have the music that brings the text to life, but you also have the picture that then reflects on the text on the, and, and brings it to life in a way. So it's a perspective of the Carmelites of the time or of even an individual Carmelite on the time, of the time on how this should be interpreted. Would you forgive me if I put you on the spot and said, what would the first line of a chant sound like? Let me get it. Uh, 
Hecest regina, virginum quae genuit regem, that's how it begins. And actually, it never changed. It was the same in the Middle middle, uh, middle Ages. And after Trent, they kept exactly the same music. So I'm doing it here from the, uh, an older book that was revised after Trent. But the, the music for that stayed exactly the same, which is, means that text and music were very important, not only to the medieval Carmelites, but to the early modern ones as well. So it stayed pretty much the same. They actually uh, require a lot of a singer. They would have had to practice a lot for some of these things, especially the the longer pieces. But um, they're oh, they're just lovely. So let's say I came in here with a BlackBerry on my holster and I don't know however much technology kind of strapped to my person, and I couldn't care less about books. How would you say, hey, this pertains to you? You should be interested in this. Well, it's part of our heritage. It's something that's been very much a part of who we are as people. It's old. I mean, it's valuable. It gives you an idea of how people have invested themselves in books. Uh, certainly for me as a Carmelite, this is part of our heritage, this is a part of our history. So many of choir books have been lost. This collection is the largest collection of Carmelite choir books that survived intact and that wasn't taken out of our house. These have still remained in our house. Every Carmelite house had to have a set of manuscripts. They're the only things that tell us what it was like. How do we know how they did things years ago? The only way we can know is by looking at these manuscripts and analyzing them. So it interests me. It's our only link to the past. And um, it's, it's nice to have those links. That's what we depend on. And the more we learn about the past, the, lo- the more we can shape our way into the future. The Carmelite choir books have outlasted their makers by hundreds of years, surviving fires, wars, invasions. I asked Father Boyce if he thought much of his own book, the one he filled with his analysis of the historiated initials and prayers and chants. Mm -hmm. Do you ever think about the potential for this book to survive generations and generations? Well, I'll be lucky if it survives my own, let's face it. (laughs) I think, well, books now, of course don't have the same value as they did years ago. There are some books last longer than others, but the shelf life of a book is, is not what it used to be. I, I don't have any illusions that my book is going to become immortal or anything like that, but um, I'm, I'm pleased to have been able to do it. Father James Boyce is an associate professor of art history and music at Fordham University. Up next, what's your calling in life? There's a lot of language around the sense of calling that involves us going out to find it. Whereas in my research um, and in what I've observed, the sense of calling is really quite developable. We can put some effort toward it and actually strive to develop our sense of calling if that's something that we want. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Shasa DeBrow is an assistant professor of management systems in the business school. She traffics in quantifiable data and very big words. But she finds her inspiration in stories she hears from her colleagues, not other academics, musicians. 
because for the past 10 years, DeBrow has worked as a professional bassoonist for ensembles galore. The Rhode Island Philharmonic, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Broadway orchestras, she knows the field. And I was talking to a musician recently who described going into this career path as being like climbing Mount Everest. He said it's the kind of thing that you know you might die doing it, but for whatever reason you feel compelled to just keep on going, to keep on climbing this seemingly insurmountable challenge. Pursuing one sense of calling, pursuing a career path like music, professional music, and a number of other career paths really is like that. The chances of succeeding are so slim, yet so many young people feel compelled to, to pursue it anyway. And DeBrow wants to know why. What is it that makes people feel that compulsion? DeBrow's not sure, but she's given it a name. She's dubbed it a sense of calling, irrational as madness, seductive as the song of the sirens from Homer's Odyssey. Odysseus knew that as he was sailing along on his ship that these sirens were going to be there, and there are these beautiful women who sang enchanting songs. And sea nymphs whose voices lure men to follow them, resulting in their steering the ships into the rocks jetting out nearby. And he found out that... He needed to take some pretty strong measures in order to avoid a shipwreck of being sort of thrashed onto the rocks by by this enchanting song of the sirens. And so what he ended up doing is he, I think, had his crew tie him to the mast of the ship so that he wouldn't be enticed to go toward these very enchanting, alluring sirens. And so I think that the sense of calling is very similar to that in that it is very enchanting. There's something about the sense of calling that sounds very enticing to us. It seems like a very positive thing that we should all want to go find or develop or seek, and yet there are actually some pretty risky aspects to to experiencing a strong sense of calling, and so we really do have to take a lot of precautions so that we don't get thrashed onto the, onto the rocks in our own careers by, by following this siren call. So, so, so bring it down to earth for me. So what would a precaution be? Well, I think one, one thing that can help Um, anyone trying to pursue a challenging career path is just the reality check. Like, what are the actual numbers um, in the field of orchestral music? We know that there are about 3,000 students who graduate from music conservatories and music programs every year in orchestra majors, and every year there are about 150 job openings. So let me just say that again. 3,000 students graduating every year, 150 job openings, and that's not taking into account older musicians who may be competing for those same slots. That's not taking into account even what instrument people play. Um, So the bottom line is there are a huge number of very talented people pursuing these kinds of jobs and such a slim number of of available full-time jobs at least. And so that really puts uh, musicians into a quandary about how to to really make it and to question why are they actually why are they actually doing it. And you say also that sense of calling can lead you down a really treacherous path and almost embitter people. This other bassoonist um, recently said to me something to the effect of he doesn't he feels overridden with guilt about teaching students because he doesn't want them to go into this profession and he threw in a few swear words which I won't repeat here um, and he doesn't want to donate money to the to the conservatory that he went to and he went to one of the top conservatories in the country um, he just feels like the mission is off um, I think he in spite of the fact that he has succeeded so extremely well professionally and musically um, it's just he just sees what a, a difficult career path it is, and he thinks that conservatories are misleading young musicians into into going into this career path where they're just really never going to make it. These are real virtuoso musicians who are playing with you know great 
orchestras at an extremely high level. And so this, it, it, it may be that that's the level of musicianship that it takes to actually succeed. And given that most of us out there aren't geniuses, you know, it raises some big questions in his mind about the viability of training young musicians to go into this kind of career path. In 2001, DeBrow began tracking 500 budding musicians. She found them at two competitive high school summer music programs, and she has them fill out surveys about once a year to monitor them as they make career decisions. Will they go to pursue music as a career or a hobby? Do they desert music altogether? And the million-dollar question, why? When I think about sense of calling, how do you isolate it? How do you, how do you figure this person is going into this field because they have a sense of calling when it could be, maybe it could be attributed to their background, um, they're responding to pressure from family, or they're just really good at it, even they don't, even though maybe they don't like it. How do you isolate and say this is? It's a sense of calling that's pushing them into this field. Yeah, well, I mean, you're hitting on it. One of the really big challenges of pretty much all social sciences research is that most things that we see in human behavior are multiply determined, meaning there are a lot of factors that come into play to to drive our behaviors, for example. Um, so how do I handle that? Through a lot of different kinds of statistical techniques, we are able to isolate the effects of a single variable while accounting for all these other types of effects that you were asking about. Part of me wants to keep a sense of calling kind of in this box, this like black box that I can't analyze, because it seems to me almost like mystical, like something, like something I don't want to define. Have you heard that before? Have you heard somebody go, no, 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 don't touch my sense of calling. I don't want to know exactly what that is. It's just my secret sauce. It's just my mojo. I haven't heard it in those exact uh, ways, but I think that, that I think that the way you've described it probably does represent how some people think about it. And, and, and I think we do see some people try to study it in that way, meaning they don't really want to get their hands dirty in it. But I think my strategy has been to say, okay, I'm just going to take a gigantic hammer and break open this black box. Rather than letting it be this mysterious, intangible thing, I want to throw all the most rigorous statistical methods and survey methods that I have at trying to understand what it is. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson, talking now with Shasa DeBrow, whose long-term study of young musicians asks the question, why do people charge headlong into competitive careers? DeBrow attributes it to a person's sense of calling, a mental state or phenomenon that she says is often glorified, even though it makes us make risky career decisions, like the choice to study orchestral music when there are so few empty seats in orchestras. We're hitting on a pretty sinister side of the sense of calling in that it's not this fluffy ambition. You know, that's, that's not what you're hitting on. You're kind of interested in the dark side of somebody's sense of calling. Yeah, well, I'm interested in both the bright side and the dark side. I think that the assumptions that get made about the sense of calling tend to be about the bright side, that if you find this sense of calling, this elusive sense of calling, that somehow everything will be perfect in your life. And I think that that's a really big, false assumption. Um, and I think there are a lot of risks, as we talked about with the siren song. And so, for example, I've done some work looking at how the sense of calling relates to our perceptions of our own abilities. So if we experience a, sen- a strong sense of calling, does that potentially shape the degree to which we can accurately view ourselves? Um, 
I jokingly call this the American Idol effect. If you've ever watched the American Idol auditions and you see people coming in and they say before their audition, you know, I'm, I'm God's greatest gift to singing, singing, I'm meant to be a singer, I'm the best singer ever, and then they get out there and sing and they're absolutely horrible. How can we potentially explain that? I think with a, a TV show like American Idol, there may be some other, you know, other uh, factors at play, such as the desire to achieve fame or notoriety, but in general, I think that's a lesson to think about with the sense of calling, that there are a lot of people who experience a very strong sense of calling who really don't have the ability to kind of back up a smart decision to pursue that area professionally, for example. However, I have found in my research that the stronger one's sense of calling, the more likely one is to actually ignore potentially useful career advice, especially if it's discouraging. And so that's a problem. But I think that the story from Odysseus does highlight one key factor that actually could help people. So Odysseus needed help. He got help from his crewmates. I believe he got some advice from other people along the way that helped him to save himself from the sirens. And I think that that's really critical for all of us in our own careers, that we have the developmental support we have from our mentors, from our friends, from our coworkers, et cetera. And so I think by having people around us who can give us useful feedback and give us honest feedback and really help hit home um, to us that maybe we're not pursuing something that's in our best interest, that that can potentially help ward off some of the problems um, of, of the sort of delusional side of a sense of calling. Shasta DeBrow is an assistant professor of management systems in the business school at Fordham University. That's all for today's Fordham Conversations. To listen to past shows, check out the archives at WFUV.org. Become a subscriber and get the weekly podcast delivered to you. Load it onto your podcast player and listen to us while you jog or while you think of jogging. Tune in next week. Robin Shannon will be back in the host seat. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Mary Wilson. (laughs) 